this is Franz. I'm talking to my friend John. Uh, John lives in Las Vegas, and and uh, a while back, a few years ago, John and I uh, were traveling together, and uh, John and I and his wife were, were sailing along the Turkish coast, and John related a story to me of when he had visited Bodrum uh, when he was uh, back in the 1970s. So, John, just go ahead and tell us, you know, that was a yeah. great story, and I just want you to go ahead and tell the story. Yeah, well, as we, you know, my wife and I and, and you, we were sailing up to Bodrum. I started telling you about it when I was there nearly 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, obviously a tremendous a lot has changed to Bodrum. I didn't even recognize the place. I mean, it, it's phenomenal what has happened in 40 years to um, a small fishing village uh, along the turquoise coast. I mean, you gotta you got to think back, you know, this is before cell phones fax machines, emails, and this was a sleepy, sleepy little fishing uh, tourist spot and a beautiful little harbor. Uh, in fact, it, it was one of the seven wonders. Uh, there was a building there called a mausoleum, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that lasted there for, I don't know, 19 centuries until finally the Crusaders came and um, they destroyed the building and took the beautiful white marble and used it to build other buildings and office, <laughs> office governmental buildings for crusaders at that time. And I think they used most of the uh, the marble and stuff to build this castle, kind of a fort, in the middle of the city called St. Peter's. Um, anyway, the story I was telling you as we were sailing up to Bodrum today, which is nothing like it was uh, 38, 40 years ago, um, uh, had to deal with one instance that I that I did where I dropped a window pane acid, and um, I actually had uh, rented a little house in Bodrum. I um, at the time I was like taking jewelry and uh, leather goods and and different uh, meerschaum pipes and things from Turkey, and I was taking them back up to Europe and selling them in Europe. I would. And then from Europe, I would bring down cameras or tape recorders and sell them on the black market. And um, I, I, so I, I was kind of like what you'd say a regular, you know, uh, I'm not a Turk, but I, was, I wasn't I was just a tourist to the Turks in the neighborhood. I mean, they knew me. And um, I had a very good friend who was Turkish named Gundus, which uh, mean, meant uh, sunrise in Turkish. And... Um, Anyway, they decided I was going to get a place, so I rented a little house. So I couldn't move in the house right away because the farmers were using it to store grains and hay and things for their um, their goats and stuff. But they were going to clean it out for me, and uh, they um, and, then, and while I was waiting for them to clean it out, I was staying in Gundis's place. But uh, anyway, you know, being about 23 years old. Um, and you're in a Muslim country, and you're used to being able to talk to uh, Western women, no matter how many guys you might be around they are really nice, you know, you get a little lonely. <laughs> you just do not see um, single females coming in unless they, they sailed in on their um, private yacht or something, and there were a couple of those that did sail in. Of course, those are the stories that I'll have to tell you, Franz, but... Anyway, this this one afternoon, I was kind of just feeling down and everything, and I had smuggled in these tiny, tiny little uh, tabs, what they called uh, windowpane crystal. They're about the size, if you took about five grains uh, granules of sugar, 
and and dissolved them and made this tiny little thin uh, speck. And um, it was very, very pure acid that I did get up in Amsterdam. And so anyway, I decided to take one, and I um, I started coming on, and I decided to walk into town. And I the uh, as I walked into town, I came upon you know St. Peter's Castle, the fort. Well, in those days, there there, there was no um, bridge or anything to get over to the castle. It was just completely surrounded by the moat. The uh, bridge had fallen into the moat, and the the, the, the castle was in a pretty pretty disarray. But there was lots of crows sailing around the um, the castle, sailing and soaring and down up into the moat, and they would catch the nest, the little hot air, and sail up. And then they, anyway, they were they were sailing around towards me, and this one big one particularly. He kept teasing me and telling, you know, I kept feeling as if he was telling me, well, you're a crow, so you know, all you got to do is put your arms out and leap into the to the moat here, and the hot air will catch you and bring you up, and you'll start soaring like the rest of us, you know. So I started thinking about that. I said, God, that would be great. That would be wonderful to start flying. And then I said, you know, John, you're stone on it. <laughs> you, you better get away from this spot before you do think you can fly, because, you know, we'd all heard stories about people who thought they could fly, and they jumped off of buildings, and, you know, so I could see the danger in this. So I, I continued walking. <clears throat> so now I'm walking basically the, the – St. Peter's um, Fort sort of divided the town in two. There was no official wall or anything, but the southern part of Bodrum was more Muslim, and the northern part, the uh, Bodrum locals were considered Christian. So they were a little more open um, with, you you could actually see a woman once in a while outside of her home. But uh, anyway, so I was walking towards the Christian area, and I veered off, and went down this little path and cliff to actually where I wound up was outside of the city walls, and I was actually sitting on the ancient ruins of the mausoleum. Um, the mausoleum was built by King Musulus and actually was finished, started by King Musulus back in 376 B.C., and it was finished by his wife. And apparently the reason it was such a wonderful ancient wonder of uh, wonderful building of ancient uh, world was it was just this gigantic, beautiful white marble building with a stepped pyramid on top. And uh, it stayed that way, as I said, until the Christian crusaders came down and destroyed it. But there was still like, you know, marble stones around and everything. But this area where I was came down and started sitting, the uh, the locals were using it kind of as a dump site. And so there was a lot, a lot of wild dogs. And of course, there were flies out there and everything. And so I'm starting to peek. I'm starting to peek on the acid, and I'm again. I'm thinking I can communicate with the uh, the dogs, and even communicate with the flies. And I actually I was able to. I, you know, I kept the dogs away from me, and I actually kept all the flies away from me. And so I was like, wow, you know. And so then I kind of kept peeking and peeking, and I had an epiphany. I really. Uh, I, I thought I was one with God. I had one of those Timothy Leary experiences. I just sat there and I was looking out across the bay and. It was just absolutely gorgeous turquoise blue water with a few sailing ships on it. And then beyond the sailing ships was the island of Kos, which is the Greek island. And for some reason, my conscious mind seemed to even go beyond the island of Kos. And I said, oh, this is fantastic. But then as I came down, I forgot everything about what was the spiritual teachings that I got. You know, so it was like, 
it was a funny experience because here, you know, you read about all these people that have had these uh, enlightenments on um, LSD, and, and I couldn't remember a damn thing except for that I had one, but I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't tell you what God was trying to tell me. But anyway, I get up, and I'm still pretty high, and I get up from this area, and start coming up on, a little bit on the hill, uh, and I get back into the, the, the harbor area on the north side of town, and I glance up on this sailboat, and there's this beautiful young uh, girl with long brown blackish hair, and she's just up on top of the on the sailboat, and um, she's like kind of hanging on the the mast. The sail isn't down, and she's letting the hair her hair just blow in the wind, and she's brushing her hair. Well, this is the most beautiful thing I've seen in months, you know, and I'm completely swept away by by uh, her youth and beauty, and especially because I told you I haven't seen any females for, for weeks there in Bodrum. So I um, I start to move towards her in the, in the boat, thinking, well, you know, come on, you know, I might like to start a conversation with this girl. Of course, she was Turkish. I mean, I don't, didn't speak but two or three words of Turkish, but, you know, I felt if I could communicate to the crows and the dogs, I should be able to communicate to her. But um, as I started approaching the sailing ship, uh, the little sailboat, she jumped off the boat, and she had a bicycle down on the ground. She got on the bicycle and then, you know, kind of sped past me in the opposite direction. So, But as she passed me and got about 50 to 75 feet on the other side of me, she slowed the bicycle down and started doing these figure eights and just letting herself relax, and her hair was blowing in the wind, and I thought, what is going on, you know? So I glanced around, and I realized I was in the center of this little town of Bodrum, or, you know, the northern part, you know, the dirt uh, plaza area, and out in front of each little house that faced the plaza area, there, was a, there were women or older women or some other younger women, and none of them were looking at me, but they were, like, preparing dinner or they were sewing or whatever, but I knew damn well they were all looking at me, you know, because it's like a guy shouldn't be talking to a, a Muslim or even a young Christian woman. But, you know, I thought, okay, I better forget about this. So, it, so I started to walk, forget about the young girl, and just start walking back towards my part of town. Well, she turns the bike around and starts coming towards me again. But as I start to approach her, she speeds up goes past me again, but when she gets on the other side in a safe distance, she just relaxes on the bike and starts doing these figure eights again and, and letting her hair blow in the wind. So I said, okay, she definitely wants to talk to me. I guess this is some sort of a traditional thing for women in this area. I mean, what do I know? So I start to walk up to approach her again, and again, her whole body language tightens. She gets stiff. She then all of a sudden turns the bike around and speeds past me again. And I'm terribly frustrated at this time. I need almost reached out to grab her bike as she went by me. And I thought, no. And I looked around, and all the women are still just there, just knitting, grinding the corn, and making <laughs> well, I better get out of here while I still can. And I just walked past her really quickly and got back towards my side of the town. And I you know, came down on in uh, my little apartment far away, but it was one of the most incredible, beautiful experiences, one of the most unbelievable flirtation-type experiences I've ever had with a woman, because she really, you really couldn't obviously flirt, but she was in the most, um, I, I don't know, beautiful, feminine way I, I, I've 
ever seen, you know, with just kind of drifting along on the wind currents and teasing me. But um, I then got back, and when I came back down, I think that evening, I asked my friend uh, Gundas, uh, and I told him the story, and he said, what, are you crazy? <laughs> he said, you can't talk to that girl. He said, I would have to make an introduction to her father. You would have to be considering marriage. And uh, I said, well, it's just, just forget it, forget it, you know, and it was like, anyway, that's that's basically the story. I mean, I can go on about Bodrum and how, like, after that, the Gundas mentioned to the farmer who was taking care of my house, uh, we were sitting around drinking Rocky one evening, and because the house still wasn't ready, they'd gotten half of the hay out, but, you know, they couldn't figure out a place to put the other half of the hay and stuff, so I still didn't have my house, but it was a beautiful house, had its own little bay and everything, but we're sitting around there, because they said, well, you should at least look at your house. So, the local farmer guy looked at me, and he starts talking in Turkish, and I couldn't understand what he was saying, but Gundis interpreted for him, and what he said was that what we they, they, they could recognize I definitely needed a woman. I mean, obviously, I mean, <laughs> I mean how old are I, you at the time? How, how, how old are you now? I'm about, 20, I'm about 23 years old, you know, and I'm sort of a world traveler with a lot of, I mean, I looked like a hippie that, those, day, those days or a world traveler that had different, you know, beads and jewelry and long hair and but they, they loved me because I brought money into the area, and I was very cool with them. But, you know, so so the guy, the, the farmer tells Gundis, you know, what he basically said was, we need to take John into the interior in the next few days and let him buy a woman. And I'm looking at Gundis, well, what, what did you say? He goes, yeah, they, they're, they're saying that you definitely need a woman. You know, we know I told him the story of how you were trying to flirt with the the Christian uh, Budrum girl up there, and they said, well, you're crazy, you know, you're, you can't do that. I said, well, what do you mean I, I can go into the interior and get a woman? Well, for about $35, you know, you can buy yourself like a 14, 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, virgin, and, you know, have her here, and she'd be your 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 wife. I said, my wife? Well, not officially your wife. You wouldn't go through the ceremony and stuff. And I said, well, what would I what would I do? I mean, what would I do with her when I, what do you do with her, what you would do with a young woman? I said, yeah, but what if I wanted to leave uh, Turkey? And they go, well, you'd just have to leave her. I said, well, yeah, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a passport for her. And even if I did get a passport for her, I realized that I came back to the States and they throw me in jail for statutory rape. So I didn't go with, with them the next few days and buy a, a woman. I mean, of course, it's denied even back in the early 70s, uh, Turkey never would admit to such a thing. But it actually went on. And, I mean, they were trying to convince me that giving, like, $35 to her family, she would feel really good. Her family would be set up for, for years to come. And, uh, you know, so what? who cared what happened to the girl after I left and went back to uh, the United States? So it was like uh, I realized I needed to get out of the area <laughs> Not that I didn't enjoy it, but I was just missing uh, female companionship. Not that I needed, I didn't want to get married, but my God, you know, a 23-year-old guy is uh, definitely, you know, uh, uh, horny at times, you know? I mean, I mean the, the hormones are raging, I mean, and you're on these beaches, and so fortunately I did did, did leave, and uh, when I got over to the Greek island area, which was... Um, just about, you know, I guess about three or four miles from uh, Bodrum. I mean, it's totally different. You know, Western girls were uh, were there on the beaches, and they'd come up in their yachts or whatever, and it was like, 
Oh my God! Thank you. <laughs> In fact, I wound up going to to a nude beach in Mykonos, you know, and I was like, "Oh, this was great." <laughs> yeah. Do you what? No, tell 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 me what. I mean, this is back in what 1970, 71. You're talking about about that time frame. Seventy one, nineteen seventy one to seventy two. Yeah, because I went into I I spent a year in Europe. I I was just. Um, I graduated from UCLA Film School, and I thought I was going to go to um, the London Film School. And when I got over to London, I said, what am I doing? I'm sick of school. I don't want to do it anymore. So I sold some of my camera equipment. Because I took off, and I only had, like, I mean, this is just amazingly how naive I was. But I just had to leave. I had to get out of the, the Los Angeles. I just felt, you know, I needed time away from my parents and everybody kind of, like, telling me what they expected you to do after you graduated from school. And I, and I, I think a lot of young people all have this kind of feeling. But anyway, my excuse I was telling everybody I was going to school because I had been accepted. But I got there in the London Film School, and I said, no, I'm leaving. So I had about 100 bucks in my pocket. And fortunately, though, I was staying with some, some a British couple who um, – they knew a lot of people through Europe because they kind of opened up their house when somebody came to visit. And they would, uh, if you were just a decent person and a nice, you know, interesting person, they would, well, where do you want to go? And they would had a list of names, and you would just call ahead and say, hey, I'm friends of, uh, you know, Elizabeth and uh, Roberts, and I'll just be in Munich in a couple of days. Yeah, sure, come on by. So. I wound up traveling and being in Europe, and I left with just $100 in my pocket, and I learned to survive and figured out <clears throat> how to, to do uh, trading in Europe. And, I, you know, it's funny because a lot of Americans are diff- you know, that I met and a couple of British people, they all, they all got into the drug scene. You know, back then it was just kind of the starting of the, of the international drug scene in the late 60s and stuff. But everyone that was in the drug scene was – unbelievably paranoid. I mean, obviously they should be because, uh, don't forget, this is the time when Richard Nixon felt that if you just threw the keys away of a drug dealer or something, then we could get rid of the drug problem. Well, I mean, they were throwing Americans in jail, you know, for a couple of ounces of hash, hashish. I mean, uh, the movie uh, Turkish, what was it, Turkish Delight? That one where that showed that American church? Or what was it? It was uh, Midnight Express. Is that the one you're thinking of? Midnight Express. Yeah, I met the dude that it was in Midnight Express. I didn't meet him in Turkey. I met him back up in England, but um, I was when I stayed in Istanbul, again, staying with somebody that was recommended. I stayed with an English girl who worked for Amnesty International, and um, while I was staying with her, she got an American girl out of prison, and this American girl had a, the, the size of hash about the size of your little finger, and she had it sewn into her Afghanistan coat. I don't know if you remember those coats that were kind of long and they were basically sheepskin and the, the, the fur of the sheep was on the inside of the coat and the outside was, you know, just kind of a suede. But they were quite pot. Anyway, this girl was eight months in a Turkish prison and the only way she survived was to make jewelry and because uh, they would just give you bread and water in a Turkish prison unless you you did something. And, and she, I couldn't believe it when she got out and then she was normal. She had picked up a few local contagious diseases, but my British friend took her to the local doctor and fortunately never penicillin and, you know, knocked out 
the the bacterial things that she had and I mean, what a story. So anyway, I stayed away from that. I, I bought jewelry and, um, you know, clothing, and then I finally realized that jewelry was the best bet because I could, one little knapsack, I could have several thousand dollars worth of jewelry that I spent for it in Turkey, and then I would, I would almost triple, more than triple, you know, jewelry has a high markup, and I would then sell it on the streets or I, in Italy or or Germany or London, and then I would, or, you know, as I said before, then I would turn, take the money and buy stuff and find somebody to hitchhike with back. Oh, you know, I, I discovered how to do this. I was hitchhiking. I was trying to get out of Northern Europe and go down to Greece and stuff because it was getting cold, and I was picked up by a German jeweler who was driving a, a German Ford, and behind him was his mechanic who was driving a Jaguar. And um, this German older guy than I was, um, but he was taking these two cars over to Damascus. And in the trunk, he had a bunch of these cheap little cameras and little mini tape recorders. I said, what the hell? He goes, oh, you watch, watch. You know, so we went through like the Albanian, yeah, it was the Albanian border. You know, we went uh, down through Yugoslavia and, and um and he started to get into the Middle East, and he just would open up the trunk and hand a few of these little, you know, cameras or tape recorders to the border guards, and they go, oh, go on through, go on through. I mean, he really didn't have anything that they wanted, but, but what it was was that he was able to get the cars through, and he was just telling them that they were his cars. And when he got to Damascus, he sold the cars because the markup for European cars was, I think, three times the value of the cars the government tried to tax them. And then he would take his profit from selling these cars, and he'd buy gold. He would, get, and then he'd take his gold back up to to Germany and make jewelry or send it, sell it to other jewelers. So it was like, I went, ah, that's an interesting thing. And I realized through him that if you just look when you're traveling, you can always figure out something that you can bring into the other country that you might be able to make a few dollars on. That that uh, say that they don't have in in their country, and then you bring it back up to another country like Turkish jewelry was not around in Europe, and then yet you know Turkey didn't have a good good uh, place to buy uh, electrical equipment. Everything was like really marked up. So, and also if you do get busted by the border guards for trying to just bring in some jewelry, or you're bringing in a stereo, they just kind of slapped your hands and maybe find you a little bit but if you had drugs you were you were locked up so i i stayed away from drugs but that's you know i I basically that's how i lived in europe for over a year and did a lot and travel and did anything i wanted to i became a little a little importer of exporter oh that's great now so so you would would you hitchhike how would you get back and forth between europe and turkey or did you get did you spend much time in syria and the other areas and the other middle east areas no, I, I didn't. I wanted to get into Lebanon, but then the war was starting to break out, and I just, I did get down into Israel, but the Israelis, they completely took everything that I had, the cameras and stuff, and they, I guess they knew I might want to try to sell it, and they, they, they just said, oh, they would hold it for me when I left Israel. Well, no, I didn't have much money, and I went and I worked on a kibbutz in Israel, and then I, I just really wanted to get out of Israel, and I was stayed with a, I wound up staying with a couple of uh, New York Jewish girls who were there in, in Israel, you know, to rekindle their faith, 
And um, the funny story, the funny story, you know, as I said, I one of the things that I did, I was a very a guest, I would always kind of clean up. I'd do the dishes or I'd do little things in the house and make people, oh, this guy's really nice. He's not just a freeloader. And, I'm, I, you know, I try or I would, if I had a piece of jewelry or something, I'd leave them with the people. And so they would always recommend me to, to you know, somebody in another country. Well, I, I wasn't recommended to these uh, New York girls. I just happened to meet them. And um, anyway, I, I was doing the dishes, like, you know, helping out after dinner and you know I was doing the dishes and after a few days you know I where are the dishes you know and there's not as many dishes you know and they wouldn't say anything so finally after about a week there was literally just like a cop and a couple of plates I mean the dishes had disappeared so I confront I kind of got close to one of the girls and she was sort of like a girlfriend and so she confided in me that they kept a kosher house and when I was washing the dishes, I was mixing up the meat and the milk dishes together. <laughs> so they were taking the dishes out and burying them in the backyard in order to purify them because the awful ignorant Gentile was <laughs> mixing meat and milk dishes together as I was washing them. And I felt so, so it was like, ah. So, so anyway, again, I go, I got to get out of this place, <laughs> But I had no money, and so this this one was like you know they, we went to the movies and I down in um, you know in Tel Aviv down there in Israel, and so I, they didn't have concession stands, or they would have somebody up front selling like a oh I don't know some hummus or some you know like some Middle Eastern thing. Well, you know. I said, well, let's, so let, this is crazy. Let's go to popcorn. You guys know popcorn? Yeah, yeah, we, of course we know popcorn. We watch what's on television and stuff. So, so they took me to a granary, and I bought a bunch of pop, uh, just corn, you know, corn kernels. And I went to then a, a bag place, and I got these little brown paper bags. and went back to the girls' place, and I'd make popcorn. And then I went back in front of the theaters, and I sold the bag of popcorn for 25 cents each. Until I got fifty dollars enough to buy an airline ticket to fly out of out of Israel, or I'd probably still be there today because I mean I couldn't I couldn't get out of the country, and so that was I felt you know I just okay well, but of course the Israelis knew about popcorn because they were watching American shows and stuff, but nobody had the brains to just sell popcorn, you know. Huh. But I'm glad they didn't because it was the only way I got out of the place, and I was really again kind of a. Uh, Israel's an interesting, very fascinating place, but it's a very tense place. It's always at war, you know. It's uh, you you really sense it. You, you you sense it with the people and stuff. And unfortunately, you know, they they've been at war for ever since uh, World War II. But if you think back on it, it's always been a warring area. And I mean, you know, you hitchhike through the country and you get picked up, and soldiers have got their machine guns with them. And it's just it's just not a place where you can kind of just relax like if you're in Greece it, um, and it was a different tension than that I had from Turkey where there was a tension that you felt towards towards Western women and of course as I mentioned to you Franz um, when you and my my wife we were going back to, to Turkey the Bodrum it's changed changed dramatically I mean they really have opened up to Western cultures a lot and women are much more liberated and free uh, than they than they were, and it's like amazing that how much they've changed in 40 years. I mean, it was always a great country, but I mean now it's like if you're a female there, you can travel and not feel too um, 
too afraid. I mean, you, you were here at my house just recently. Remember my wife was saying how I told her that she couldn't, I didn't really even want to go to Turkey, or if we did, she had the dress completely covered up and never to leave my side. <laughs> she, none of that was there. I mean, my God, Bodrum now was this big, remember we were trying to uh, sleep out in the bay and the disco was boom, 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 boom. I mean, it's like there's 30,000 people living in Bodrum now, and then I guess in the summer, the influx of the tourists and the women in bikinis, and it's different. And it's just totally different, you know. So. Well, now, when you went down there, when how did you pick Bodrum? Uh, you call Bodrum. I say Bodrum, but anyway. How did you choose Bodrum as a place to go? I mean, that's st- sort of off the beaten path anyway. Did, and were there other expatriates there yeah, when you is. were there? There was a few expatriates, but the, the the woman I was staying with in Istanbul, um, she was British, and she had been living in Istanbul for several years and actually was teaching English to the Turks. And Gundus lived also, had a place in Istanbul, and he was... And so they mentioned the beauty of uh, Bodrum and, um, and said I should really check it out, you know, and so... That's why I went down there. I mean, it, it was always been beautiful. In fact, I think it was prettier before it got all developed. I, I think the little houses and the tiny little boats that were there, it was just uh, incredibly quaint. And now, of course, it's quite built up, and it's more of an international um, destination place for the jet set. You know? but, so it was, it was recommended to me, and it was a hairy bus ride to get down there. I um, didn't have a nice sailboat like you to get there. I was cross country and, you know, in a bus, it just was like exhausting with chickens in the bus and it's all the stories you hear about, you know. Did you, when you were, it was recommended. so you're in their 20s and you're traveling around Europe and, and being an exporter, importer for a few years, for, for about a year. What finally, when did you finally decide to go back to America? What What was your motivation and, you know, what was the impetus there? Um, I finally, I finally realized what it was I wanted to do in my life. And I had been a film major in college and I said, yeah, I do. I do want to be a film, filmmaker and get back to it. And I really don't have a very good, um, um, natural instinct for languages. So I, you know, I have a daughter now and she picks up languages really easily. And I mean, I was offered in Istanbul a chance to have a great executive position at one of their local TV stations because, you know, I mean, uh, they, for them to have an American, even though I was like 21 or 22, but at UCLA, hold on, there's another call. I'll get rid of this call. Hi, you there? Yep, we're here. Ron? Mm-hmm. Can you hear? So, yeah. Um, I could either go to London, New York, or back to Los Angeles. And also, I, you know, after a while when you're traveling and you're by yourself, I mean, you meet people as you're traveling and you have kind of a great time, and then they kind of go their way and you go your way. And I did have, you know, affairs, or I don't know if you call it affair, or I would, you know, I had girlfriends and, you know, one in Paris and one in Munich and, you know, Scandinavia. <laughs> but I never really didn't bond that long uh, to where I thought I would stay. I don't know. I, I, after about a year, I felt I wanted to be with family and I wanted roots down in a place where I could, I felt, develop my career. And, and um, London, you know, because of the language problems, I, I had those three three options I felt 
And uh, I decided to come back to uh, Los Angeles. Actually, I did go to New York for a while. I don't know why, what a cultural shock that was after you'd been. I mean, even in, even in Paris or, or London, which are big cities, New York is gigantic, and the energy going on in that in Manhattan is just so intense. It, it's amazing. It took my eyes a while to adjust to all of the input that you had in Times Square, or the cars, or the subway, or the masses of people walking. It, was, uh, it took about two weeks to finally adjust to it. It was interesting. But uh, that's why about, about a year I finally realized I just, I, it was great. I thought I, originally when I started trekking across, I needed to get to India and do the whole thing where I needed to find a guru to help me find the center of my being. And traveling actually and meeting people and going through experiences gave helped me find the center of my being and then you realize it's with you it's with wherever you are you can be any place you don't need to be in the, in india someplace and sitting there listening to a guy you know chanting home um it was um it was a great lesson i think that's one of the benefits of travel is just especially if you're not doing the standard tourist package traveling where you're isolated in a way from the local people and you're with a tour group not to put that down i kind of enjoy that kind of traveling now as i'm older but when you were just on your own and you had no really agenda and you just kind of went where you met people and and uh, or you were getting out of an area because it was too cold you um really had time to for self into you know self-reflection and stuff and uh I did, and I think most every young person has, needs to kind of anchor and figure out who they are. And I was fortunate to be able to travel at a time when uh, it was, you could do it. You could do it very inexpensively. You could hitchhike, you could stay, you could like, help, you could do some work in a place for a while. Or, you know, there was, uh, it was great. I don't know, I think it's much harder now. I don't think that people open up their houses to other people as much to uh, let them travel, but I think if they did, it would be beneficial not only for the traveler, but I know the people that I stayed with just loved it, you know? I mean, you have some people come and stay at your place that are travelers, don't you, Fonzinance? It's great. You always learn something of where they've been, what do they do, what have they seen, what's what's off the beaten path still to be experienced, you know, and it's, it's exciting. Well, you know, I think what we, a lot of people chase money in their lives and, and fame and stuff. I I found the the most valuable, the best memories I have are my 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 relationships and friendships that I've developed with other people. You know, I think I think stories. I love to hear people tell stories, and and uh, you know, I guess we probably should uh, just let the listeners know how you and I met. I I live in Salt Lake, and I um, I had written a couple screenplays, and I and I thought, well, heck, uh, if to, to sell the screenplays, I've got to I've got to find find people that will read them and uh so i decided well the only way to get people to read them is to go basically sell sell the product so we have sundance film festival here and i went up one year and and i started uh crashing parties and meeting people and and uh i crashed a party where i met you and uh you know i never did anything with the screenplays i never did anything like that but but you know, as a result of that, you know, these black swan events occurred, and you and I became friends, and we've been friends for, geez, ten, fifteen years now. It's been a long time. I guess it's been at least ten years yeah, anyway. Yeah. So. That was one of the few parties I had been invited to, and then after that, we both started crashing various parties. And didn't even bother to try to get our names on lists. We just 
we would go through the kitchens or whatever, and actually we had a great time. But the, those scripts, uh, especially the one that you wrote about the people traveling to Greece, I mean, uh, I wish you hadn't given up on it and you would have spent a couple more rewrites on it because I'm a firm believer that nobody sits down and writes the perfect script on the first pass. It's a really a, uh, it's at least six drafts minimum before you get a real presentable script. And then usually when it goes to the producers and the studios and stuff, they ask for more rewrites. But um, you definitely got the talent, you know. But uh, oh well, that's that's not what this. That that's not what this podcast is about. We can get into that some other time. But John, you got some great stories. I know it's stories. more about meeting. I know it's more about meeting people through travels and stuff. But yeah, I was traveling up to Sundance, and you were there, and we became friends. I mean, it's just, uh, and I think we have that mutual. We like to travel to unusual places. We like to be off the beaten path, um, and I think that's what helps the bond that we have so much and we, we do have incredible times incredible times when we're together you know yeah yeah so. well thanks john i'm going to wrap it up here and uh maybe i'll call you back and get another story from you some other time all right well listen it was fun i mean it's really fun to relive these things and talk about them again you know it's wonderful so thanks a lot i appreciate the opportunity thanks john talk to you later